You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, in our reading today, uh, we see again how carefully Luke arranges his material. In contrast to Mark and Matthew, at this stage in Jesus' ministry, Luke edits the account of of Jesus' early ministry, compressing uh, the details of his Galilean ministry, basically not leaving it out, but just summarizing it in one sentence, to emphasize Jesus' return to Nazareth. In particular, he writes the account in such a way as to center on one thing, Jesus' reading from the scroll of Isaiah about the Spirit of the Lord. That's the focus of this whole event for Luke. That's the thing he wants us to sort of uh, really engage with. And in Luke's Gospel already, the Holy Spirit has had a full part to play in the ministry, or everything to do with Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is there at the Annunciation. He's uh, announced there uh, in terms of this uh, mysterious uh, conception inside Mary. The Holy Spirit guided, we haven't looked at this together as a church, but guided Simeon, who's this old man in the temple waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Spirit prompts uh, Simeon to go at just the right time, tells him he's going to see the Messiah. And he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah in the temple. The Spirit has anointed Jesus as his baptism and, he's, and the Spirit has led Jesus into the, the desert. So now, having triumphed over temptation, Jesus has, if you like, he's reached full stature as a human being. And now he returns in the power of the Spirit to commence his public ministry. Luke is making a bigger point, though, than just that the Spirit is involved in Jesus' life. In the history of Israel, people chosen by God for special roles were anointed with oil by God's prophet. And Luke wants us to know that Jesus is God's supremely anointed one. That's the focus of this whole thing for him. Jesus is the supremely anointed one. And that's the literal meaning of the Hebrew word Messiah or Christ in Greek, the anointed one. That's what that word means. Um, but Jesus is not anointed with symbolic oil. He's anointed with the real deal. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit, not the, not the sign, but the substance of the sign, the thing that was always indicated, the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus reading this opening line, um, opening his reading with this line, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, serves as a kind of like, do you see what's going on here? Luke's saying, do you see what's going on here? Um, and in case we've missed the point, uh, Luke records for us Jesus' words, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the Christ. That's the, that's the focus of the passage. Well, two little applications to uh, kick us off. Firstly, I, just, I think this is a really encouraging thought that it's important for us to note that Jesus is full of the Spirit after his temptation. He's full of the Spirit after his temptation. He's been battling in the wilderness for these 40 days, hungry and thirsty and tempted beyond anything we can probably imagine. And I I, I think actually recognizing this is probably one of the most helpful things that you will do in terms of your own personal fight against sin. To recognize that after a battle against sin, after a battle against temptation, there is a filling, a refreshing with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is lifted up on wings of eagles. And so God does for us too when we fight sin. You know, we have this thing in our minds, I think subconsciously, we think of um, 
battle against temptation is almost like a one-sided fight. Like you're in a siege, you know, in a castle, in medieval times, and the, bat- the army's just there, they're throwing everything at you, and yeah, you've, you've seen them off for now, but they'll be back again tomorrow. You know, our attitude to a fight against sin is often, I'll live to fight another day. And God says, is saying to us through his word this morning, it's so much more than that. So much more than that. Uh, there's an upside to winning. When you resist the devil, he doesn't hang around, does he? What happens? He flees, right? When you resist the devil, he flees, and the Holy Spirit rushes in. That's it. So just as Jesus lifted up and filled, so it is with us. When we resist temptation, the devil flees, the Holy Spirit comes. And this is this is picture, again, that we think of a one side. You think of Adam and Eve, you know, Eve taking the apple, Adam taking the, the, the apple from Eve and, and biting into it. And we imagine this is just a kind of one-sided thing. There's this perfect world, and if they eat the apple, everything will go terribly wrong. And C.S. Lewis paints a, a picture of this, a kind of... Uh, imagining what the Garden of Eden was like, and he's saying it's almost like the whole universe is holding its breath, waiting to see what happens. But you know, they're not just holding, uh, the universe isn't just holding its breath because they're waiting to see if Adam will fall. They're waiting to see what will happen if he doesn't as well. It's not just a continuation of peace. There was a triumph on offer to Adam as well. I know that's sad, but it's helpful to see both sides of the story. It's sad that Adam didn't resist temptation like Jesus did. But we have Jesus because of that, so glorious fault, as I think it's Thomas Aquinas said. <laughs> so that's how you should picture it when you're faced with temptation. Maybe you're faced with temptation this morning. Maybe maybe there's some, uh, what the purists call a besetting sin, something that keeps coming back to you again and again and again. You feel like a castle under siege. You feel like someone who's been in a fight and thinks, oh, I can only last a, a few more rounds before I'm just going to fall flat. Know this, that when you resist temptation, when you fight back, when you use the word of God and speak it to the devil, when you say no to that thing, it's not just a case of you, you made it through, but you can expect the Holy Spirit to come and fill you and empower you for service. That's really, really important, I think. I, th- I think it's good, right? Yeah. Hopeful? <laughs> God's good. Not just besetting sins, just occasional ones as well. You know, something comes along out of the blue and it's kind of like, you know, you find yourself wanting to say that thing or look at this thing, or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's not just about if you sin, this bad thing is going to happen. But actually, we can grieve the Spirit. You know, we're going to lose something more than just to do something wrong. God's waiting for that opportunity. You say, do you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. So that he can empower you for, for service. So I think that's a, a really good little side point. Um, I hope you find that helpful. Um, secondly, it's worth noticing what Luke emphasizes about Jesus' ministry. Just this second little point. Jesus has done miracles already. We know from the context that he has he's done miracles. But Luke emphasizes here that Jesus is acting now as a prophet. He is God's anointed prophet, one who teaches God's people. So you notice if you've got your Bible open, verse 15, it wasn't the miraculous that Luke um, records for us that's happening right now, but that he was teaching in all their synagogues. Interesting. And in his reading from Isaiah, notice this emphasis on teaching again, or on prophesying, we might say. Jesus announces this manifesto of what God is going to do in the world with these words, preach and proclaim and proclaim again, verses 18 and 19. Now, I was talking to someone yesterday, and they were saying, the last thing our country needs now is us telling people about the gospel. We need to live it out. You know, there's good intention in that. We do need to validate the message of the gospel by the lives we lead. But as people made in God's image, with intellect and will and all those things, we, ha- 
We have to proclaim the gospel in a way that people will not just understand, but are able to respond to decisively. The kingdom of God is not something you can just drift into by thinking, oh, that's nice, I think I would like that too. There is a passport gate that you have to go through. You know, there's a passport gate you have to go through, and that is through the gospel. And our job is to proclaim it to people. So just a little encouragement to you. I was talking to uh, another minister, Simon Allaby, in The Connection. He sent me about this amazing bit of research that he'd come across. They're running a course based on it at his church at the moment. He was saying they did this kind of research in, in, in the UK about people's attitudes to religion. And the results were so astounding that they had to do the research all over again because they thought they'd messed it up. But one of the highlights of, of the research was something like 43%, I think I'm quoting fairly ac- accurately, of people know a Christian and look up to them as someone who is uh, admirable in some way. 20% of people who are asked said that if a Christian asked them to come to church, they would go. One in five people that you ask to come to church with you, or that you ask to come to something, will come. That, and that was the thing that really knocked them. They were like, no, it's got to be like 0.3% or something. <laughs> one in five people, statistically, in this country, if you invite them, will come. So you've asked one person, you've asked two people, you've asked three people, you've asked four people, they've all said no. There's a very, very good chance that the fifth person you ask will come. So, proclaiming the gospel, we still got to do it, right? And we can do it, hopefully. Yes, okay, well, <laughs> I think that's a good point. <laughs> can you explain your faith to someone? Can you give your testimony? You know, it's, these are good things for us to think about. We, not just living the gospel, not just preaching it with power. Uh, not just living it with power, but being able to explain the reason for the hope that you have. Can you explain the gospel? Can you tell someone why you're a Christian? That's what they're doing at Simon Allaby's church. Tell someone why you're, not what a Christian is, why you are a Christian. That's something for us to, to think about. Okay, let's get to the, the main point, shall we? So picture the scene. We've read it already, but just to help us to understand what's going on in Luke's gospel. Jesus comes back to his hometown. Luke is very clear about that, where he grew up. He goes to the synagogue, as was his custom. He gets up, and he, the scroll of Isaiah would have been probably on two spindles, and they would have to scroll through. We don't know whether that was the reading for the day. We don't know if they had a kind of lectionary, or whether Jesus deliberately turns to Isaiah which we, that part of Isaiah we now call chapter 61. But either way, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. And he, as he reads, there's something different about this boy, young man, who has grown up there. You know, it's worth thinking about, isn't it, that Jesus was 33, a bit younger than me, a bit older than Mark, two years older than Mark. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Just, it's just interesting to think about that in terms of the Lord's incarnation. He was a human being. He wasn't this ageless person. He was 33 years old. He gets up, there's something different about him today and he reads from scripture in such a way that there is something new is happening. People haven't heard, even just the reading read like this before. Have you ever been in church and had that experience where someone's read something and for some reason it's different that day and there's a kind of, it grabs you. And it's like God is speaking through his word. Well, that's exactly what they were experiencing because God was literally speaking out his word. 
And as he finishes reading, they are transfixed. They're gazing upon him intently. I think the word rapt would be good. They're rapt attention. All eyes on Jesus. He sits down, not in the congregation. He sits down to teach. And he begins with these words. Today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you feel the weight of what was happening that day? The Jubilee year is being announced. The year of the Lord's favour when the prisoners will go free, when debts are cancelled. Can you feel the weight of that? These are no longer just precious words. No longer just holy words. And that's, that's a big just, right? But suddenly, there's this living encounter. What is the difference in Jesus? What is the difference in the young man that they've seen growing up? The difference is, it's this anointing with the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us in the first, he returns full of the, full of the Holy Spirit. This is the difference. Jesus was never lacking because as a son of God, he never could lack the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But now there is a new something upon him. A, a chrismation. He is now the Christ. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit and there's his power flowing over him and from him that brings these, these words to life. Now, the main point I think God would say to us this morning, it would impart to our hearts by the Spirit this morning, is simply this, that God wants to remind us of the possibility of that encounter. That we too can experience the rapture of seeing and hearing Christ powerfully fulfill his word among us each week as we worship on Sundays. That's, that's, the, that's what this passage, that's what God would say to us through this passage this morning. We have a right to expect what that, that moment of power, that, that moment of potential, of seeing of God's word come alive and, and impact the hearts and being wrapped in Christ. That is what Sundays, when we gather together as a church, all together as a body, that is what it is all about. Amen? That is what we should expect. God wants to meet with us personally, powerfully. Week after week, as we gather together, he's able to do that because of the power of the Spirit among us. And we should do all that we can to honour the Lord's intentions. We should come expecting that encounter. You know, we said uh, 18 months or so ago, when we look, we're looking at the Ten Commandments together, Christians have a moral duty to attend worship on the Lord's Day. You know, and, and I remember at the time, I think I compared it to the kind of priority you would give to the, a wedding invitation from a close friend. Except that happens every week. <laughs> but that's the kind of, if you're trying to think, should I go to church today? Imagine that your best friend is getting married and they've given you an invitation and then try and you know, weigh it up against that. We, we talked about guarding Sundays from everyday preoccupations so that the honour of that worship is preserved. We talked about seeing Sunday as the culmination of our, of our worship in the week and the source from which our spiritual life flows, gathering together like a heartbeat. Do you remember? This is why. Because you encounter Christ, the Lord Jesus, here when we gather together like nowhere else.
of all the ways we meet with Jesus. Studying the word on our own, worshipping in our families, all sorts of different contexts. There is nowhere else that he promises to be with us like he does when we gather together as a church. You know, our... How are you feeling? Our experience of church isn't always like that. But this is the invitation from God. What can you do? What can you do to come expecting that encounter, to facilitate that encounter? What can you do? Well, firstly, I think, you can come to church expectant. Can't you? Come to church expecting. If you don't remember anything else, remember Jesus is in Nazareth, everyone going, oh, the Holy Spirit there in power, and think, that is what Sunday is supposed to be like. I'm going to give you some more reasons, but if you don't follow all those reasons, just hold that picture in your head and say, that is what church is supposed to be like. Hold that in your, in your mind. We are in danger of over-familiarity, aren't we? If we come without any expectation. Our culture is over-familiar with the Christian message. It thinks it knows it, it doesn't. Bless her, Sophie came home from school this week. She was really upset. She saw someone kicking a Bible around the corridors of her secondary school. Why? They don't know what it is, do they? They don't know what it's the power of God. They don't know that the message of salvation is contained with it. They're, they're ignorant. We're not ignorant. We know that God wants to meet with us. Yeah, and just like uh, Jesus' hometown at Nazareth, there is a danger that we become over-familiar with the means of grace to us, with the means God has chosen to meet with us powerfully. And we stop expecting to meet with him powerfully. Do you think there's a danger of that? The people at Nazareth, interesting, they were not over-familiar with Jesus, not to start with anyway. They weren't over-familiar with Jesus to start with because... They had heard what he'd done everywhere else. And so they came with an expectation. And I think that's part of what created this moment when they're all gazing at him. Wait, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? We have to come expectant. We have to come expectant because Jesus promises to be in our midst when we gather together. Two or three are gathered together in his name. He promises to be here in a way that is not like you will have in your personal quiet time. There is a different sense of the Lord's presence. You know, and we find that in scripture really clearly. What does it mean to gather in his name? I think it means, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, to join with the son in the worship of the father, to see the father's love and, the, you know, standing in the son's place and to return that praise to him, to come in, into that place knowing that we're joining with Jesus. We are walking in, when we come in on Sunday, we're walking in to the continuous praise of heaven. That's, that's what's happening. The continuous praise of heaven, that, that heavenly throne room that John writes about in Revelation, where this stuff is just going to blow our minds. And Jesus is saying, welcome, I'm not going to reveal the whole thing to you because your heads will explode. One day you'll be there and it'll be amazing, but you can come and join in with me in this worship of the Father. And when you sing, you're singing along with the angels. You're participating in that holiness so that the cherubim and the seraphim as they, as they stand in the Lord's presence. You're joining in with all the saints who gaze upon God who are in the presence of Christ now and we're joining in with that worship. We are, so when we come in Jesus' name, that's what's happening. 
That was the clear expectation of the New Testament. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about when you are assembled, the power of the Lord Jesus is present. So we should come expecting because Jesus promises to be there. We should come expecting because Jesus promises that he will manifest himself by the Spirit to you when we love one another. John 14. You know, when we come together, we take all our everyday fellowship, all the small acts of service and love and appreciation, what sort of thing, we come together. That's a wonderful collection right there. But even the act of corporate worship is an act of loving submission, isn't it? You can't sing whatever you want. You can't say whatever you want. You've got to stand up at the same time as everyone else. You've got to sit down or whatever. You know, there is an act of service to one another. We are joining in with the worship of the church has come to us down through the centuries. And we're, we're, we're tapping into that somehow. We're not trying to make a clean break and say, oh, we've got to do this 21st century style. We want to join in with the, with the worship of the church throughout the centuries. That's an act of love, not just to make it up as we go along. When we love one another, when we gather together, Jesus says, John 14, 21, I'll manifest myself to you if you obey that commandment. We have to come expectant because... Jesus promises us that we we will encounter him him in his word. What happened at Nazareth that day, that great picture, is symbolic of what happens when we read and preach God's word at church. We're not just repeating words. We're not just affecting our minds when we read scripture. You know, um, Mark read for us from Nehemiah earlier. And remember their response, there was this weeping of the the weight of God's word as the sense of the reading was made known to them. You know, I want to say this, and maybe this is a bit provocative. Some people would say, would actually base their model of preaching on Nehemiah and say that the job of the preacher is to make sense of the text so that the people can, can understand what God has said. Yes, step one. But then there's the new covenant, which is also important, right? Step two. What does the Holy Spirit do through the reading and the preaching of the word? brings Jesus into our midst. He shows us not only the sense of the text, which is important, he shows us how it points to Jesus. And he brings it like bubbling up like a living fountain of water into the present now. And God speaks to us as if he's having a conversation with us in the moment through the preaching of the word. That's the promise. This scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. That's what we should expect from our preaching. The Spirit is the one who will lead us into truth. He makes known to us the things of Christ. That's the next level that happens. Peter is so concerned about this, he writes um, to to preachers in the church, he says, speak as those who speak the very words of God. We have this, so we should come expectant again because we have this encounter with Jesus as anointed preacher. That's humbling for me to say, and I know it's probably hard for you to believe if you, you know, if you're just listening to me as a human being expanding God's word. But there's this promise behind that. The Holy Spirit takes what I say or whoever is standing here and preaching to you. If they're preaching through the text to you, that the Holy Spirit will take that and not just make you understand it, but will speak powerfully to you. So that you are, you'll be wrapped. We have to come expectant on top of those things because in the Lord's Supper we encounter Christ really through the Eucharist. 
John Calvin, the great reformer, said, Christ's body is in heaven and we are still pilgrims on earth. But this gap is bridged by the miraculous and secret virtue of Christ's spirit, for whom it is not difficult to associate things that are otherwise separated by an interval of space. It is through his incomprehensible power that we come to partake in Christ's flesh and blood. And so Paul says, you know, well, Paul said it first. Calvin was getting what he said from Paul. But <laughs> Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, it's not, the, it's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. He warns them not to treat it as an everyday meal. If you're hungry, don't stuff your face at communion. That's basically the message in 1 Corinthians 11. You know, if you want to chat about the weather, you can do that afterwards over tea and coffee. It's not an everyday thing. We come and we encounter Christ. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup, Paul writes, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink it from the cup. That examination of yourself is not, am I worthy in the sense of like, when none of us is worthy, but am I ready to meet Jesus? Is there anything I need to deal with before I go and take part in this meal and are united with him by this, these sacramental means? So our attitude to, you know, there's, there should be this expectation when we come to church for all these different reasons, for the reason of the Lord's Supper. It's not, we don't want to get to that situation where the Lord's Supper feels like a funeral, right? Where it just feels sad. It should be a joyful thing, but it's a joy that comes from knowing we are about to encounter Christ in a unique way. His power is about to flow into us, like Nick said last week, in a way that it doesn't in any other way. To bring healing and his love and a revelation of who he is and to unite us to him and everything that goes with it. We have to come expectant. So we have to come expectant for all those things also because the Holy Spirit delights to give gifts to build up the church when we gather together. The Holy Spirit gives special gifts for use when we gather together. That, again, is the clear expectation of Scripture. There is, a, uh, there is this ministry to one another in the Spirit that we should expect to happen when the church gathers. That we may not or may infrequently experience outside the gathering of the church. Read 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, if you want to look at what the expectation is. But Paul says, in summary, that we should come ready to give and receive. When, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word or of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So we have to come expectant. Got the picture? <laughs> Got the, uh, the picture of Jesus in Nazareth, the Holy Spirit on him and flowing from him and the sense of the weight. That's what we should be expecting for all those reasons, probably more. Secondly, I would say, to have that encounter, we should come knowing our need. You know, it impressed on me, I preached on this, but I'll, I'll mention it just briefly. Um, the, the time when Jesus goes to the house of Simon the Pharisee, and Simon, just the Pharisee, just misses it completely, doesn't he? Doesn't welcome Jesus, doesn't wash his feet, doesn't give him a kiss on the cheek, of welcome, nothing. And this woman comes in, a woman a sinful woman, we don't know exactly what her sin was, we could guess, comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears and anoints his feet in front of all these guests. And Simon, if this man were a prophet, he would know what type of woman this is. 
He misses it completely, doesn't he? Why? Jesus tells him, because you don't know your... He basically, he says, you don't know your need. He who is forgiven much, loves much. He wasn't saying to Simon, you don't need to be forgiven much. He was saying, you don't know how much you need to be forgiven. And if we come to church knowing our need, our need for forgiveness... Not just forgiveness, but our need for God's power to live the life that he commands us to live. Our need for the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to flow into us, to empower our acts of, of obedience and to fill us with the love of God. If we know that need because through the week we're reflecting on how much we need him. God will meet with us powerfully. We won't miss it like Simon. We'll be engulfed in it like that woman. So we have to come hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled, the Bible says. You know, the psalmist says, uh, Psalm 63, you, you God are my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being belongs, longs for you, like a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Do you feel like the love of Christ is better than life? Do you come hungry and say, Lord, I need it. Where else am I going to get it? When you come to church. I will, because your love is better than life, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I'll lift up my hands. So we have to come knowing, we have to come expectant for all those reasons, we have to come knowing our need. Third, we have to come with a sacrifice. Or to flip it around, we have to come not as consumers. Not as consumers. We are so embedded in a consumer culture. So embedded in a consumer culture. And you know what, I... This may not stand up in kind of, you know, a university, but I, you can almost say that consumerism is the triumph of passivity, isn't it? Where you just, things come to you, well, and you consume them. And you don't have to do anything, or you have to do as little as possible to get that thing. Ease and convenience, and we're so into that. In every part of our lives, we're so wired into it, I almost wonder, like, we're going to look back in a hundred years and just think, like, we were all bonkers at how kind of consumer influence we are. We have to be so careful about not coming with that passivity when we come to church. We think if we receive the right things, we will be happy. But sons, because we're called to sonship, aren't we? Sons are not passive. The Son of God is not passively in eternity beholding the love of the Father and just saying, thank you very much. He is returning that love in eternity. And in time, he did the same thing. He did not just passively stand at the baptism and say, thank you, I'm the beloved of the Father, and then go home. He then offered his life in obedience back to his Father, even unto death. So passivity is not going to make you happy. That's, I know this is a more general point. There's a reason why God asks for, in the Old Testament, a sacrifice of praise. It's not because, do I, do I need your sacrifices? He says, no, I don't need, they're not for me. He tells the people of Israel, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need anything from you. The sacrifice is for, for you. So when we come and we want to encounter Jesus in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We have to act like sons. We have to offer our lives back to the Father as Jesus did. 
And do you know what? I'd, at the risk of alienating the ladies here, that just kind of means we have to man up a bit with our worship. It means we have to come and be a little bit more. Actually, you know what? As a church, we're pretty good. So I don't say, I'm not saying this because you guys are rubbish at it. <laughs> but just a reminder of what it's all about. But we have to be willing to embrace a, a, a style of worship and a pattern of worship that is not just about making us feel comfortable. Jesus is not our happy place. He's a consuming fire. So we have to come ready to, to offer ourselves to him. And you know, I've got some specifics, but really it's an attitude, isn't it? It's really an attitude of, I'm not just here to be ministered to. I want to offer up my life to God. You know, it's, it's not just down to you individually to come in the right frame of mind. It's down to those who lead. We have to be careful to lead in such a way as to emphasise what I'm saying. We talk about in the leadership team the verticality of worship. What we mean by that is just this sense of that we are expecting to encounter God more than we're expecting to encounter one another. We want to lead in such a way as, as enables that. It's down to the way we lead and we want to not get in your way, you know, by doing whatever, you know, sniffing when you preach or something. I'm trying, I'm trying really hard not to do that. We don't want to cause you to stumble in your encounter with God. Obviously, there are always weaknesses in human worship. But we don't want to deliberately walk into that. We can serve each other by not causing one another to stumble, you know, by having that expectation, by the, the way we... You know, I remember someone saying to me once, you know, the way you... Before I was a preacher, the way you sit... See, I'm just smuggling in something that's really selfish here now. It's good for me. The way you sit, the way you pay attention when someone's preaching just makes such a difference to the preacher. I'm supposed to be standing here preaching the very words of God. And when I'm in my prep during the week, I'm praying and I'm saying, God, I want to say what you want to say to your church. You know, so that, that's what's going on in me. And then if I come in the morning, and it, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but if, if people are just like, mm, 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 mm. you know, I'm okay with the fact that, you know, I'm not going to be like, uh, I don't know, Charles Spurgeon or something. I, you know, it's fine. It's, it's not really about you affirming me. It's about you affirming what we're talking about. The, the, well, the preaching is the, the very words of God, and however skillful or incompetent the preacher is going to be, if there's, a, there's a, a, a genuine approach, a genuine dependence on the Lord, a genuine channeling through His word, then you're going to encounter Him, and you should come expectant. So even the way you sit, I remember someone. So sorry, that's a really long way around of saying. Someone said to me, <laughs> the way you sit and the way you look at the preacher can be so encouraging, so encouraging. Just keeping eye contact and smiling. So you're going to smile now. <laughs> Don't make me root for those amens. You can just say them spontaneously. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> but it's serving one another as well, you know. If it, it, you know, if you're just if you're if you're flopped out along a row next to someone, it's hard for the person next to you to go. This is the very word of God. When you're snoring next to them, you know. <laughs> What am I talking about? Consumerism. <laughs> yes, okay, so it's not all down to you. It is down to the way we lead and the format of the service. You know, I'm a little bit scared of introducing things that will make you work hard. I'll be honest with you. A little bit, because I don't want you to go, oh, it wasn't as good this time. I don't... Oh. <laughs> But I do think actually God wants us to do a few things that make us work a bit harder. You know, say the creed together, something like that. Maybe the Lord's Prayer. Maybe we do those 
we prayed for the world, so we prayed about the Holocaust today, that outward-looking prayer. It doesn't flow as easily as those things that we receive passively. And yet the Bible commands us to do them. So we have to accept, you know, as much as we love that freedom we have as a free church, do whatever we like, there are things that God commands us to do. And not even if he didn't command us to do them, they're, they're morally good for a church to be outward looking and serving the world through prayer, aren't they? We should be doing them. So even if it's a little bit of a bump in our kind of charismatic road, we should be doing those things and accepting the hard work. I did plan to say that, but, you know, it's, it's good, isn't it? Yes. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> So this individually then, do we just come to receive? Or do we come to make a sacrifice of praise? If you want to encounter God, you have to come ready to give. The practical things you can do. You know, if you, if you give your kid an iPad and then you've got something really, you know, where you need them to be quiet, if you give them an iPad right up to the moment they need to be quiet, that's not going to work, is it? Guys with young children, you know what I'm talking about. They'll be like, blah, blah, blah all over the place. But you know, I'm not talking about children on iPads, by the way. <laughs> Do what you like, it's up to you. But I'm saying when you come to church, if you're rushing around right up until the last minute, if you're not prepared, if you haven't made space, you know, it's going to be hard to come into God's presence. I know this is really down to earth and practical, but it's true, right? Just take that time, gather your family, pray together, whatever. You know, make space. We talked about keeping Sunday holy. Not this kind of legalistic observation, but it's the point really is that it's making space for this encounter. You've got freedom, you know, as children of God, as under the new covenant, you've got freedom to to do all sorts of things on a, on, a, on the Lord's day, but don't do things that will impinge on your encounter with Christ at church. Maybe you've got some things in mind. You can fast; it's a good way to prepare. You can pray. That's what Jesus was doing before he came to this thing. But to give, just to sum up, it means it will cost you. It will cost you effort. It will cost you attention. It will cost you submission to those around you. It will cost you the effort of remembering what God has done for you in the week and bringing that in praise or in petition. Thinking, you know, having that, what Nathan calls that growth mindset. It's going to hurt a little bit, but it's good because we're making a sacrifice and we're inviting through that the presence of the Spirit. And that leads to encounter in that giving, that's how we find rest. You know, we're, we're worried, aren't we? We're going to be exhausted if we come and give. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's not asking more than we can do. Okay. So, we should come with expectation. We should come knowing our need. We shouldn't come as consumers, but with a sacrifice. I want to think of, just finish by thinking about what all this is for. It's not just about us, of course. It's not just about the joy and the power of encountering the Lord Jesus. It's not just about us. It's about the message that he brings in our reading today. The message of good news. The message of salvation to the world. What's at stake in our encounter with God is not just our closeness with him, not just our rapture in the beauty of the Lord. It is that mission flows from that encounter. 
Our, our drive to tell people this good news flows from our joy in the Lord. Like Mark read for us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. If, we, if we're not encountering Jesus like that, we're not really going to be bringing people to him, are we? If people get saved and they come to our church and we're all just like, no, they're not going to stay. The joy of the Lord is our strength. What is this really about? It is about joining with Jesus on this mission. Hear those words. See that encounter. Have it in your head. The, 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 the pregnancy of that moment as they all stare at Jesus and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And hear the invitation. This is the work of the Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He is ready to flow through you to bring life to the world around you. Good news. Freedom to prisoners. Sight to the blind. Release to the oppressed. This encounter with Jesus is where that anointing, a chrismation of Jesus in the Holy Spirit flows onto us and empowers us and sends us out to the world. That's what will move us to mission. But we can't have it without communion with Christ. So fix your eyes on that. And as we go out with that message, fix your eyes on this. This gospel reading is not just a picture of the church on earth gathered around Christ, but it is a picture of the church in its final state, in heaven. That's where we're going. Sunday after Sunday, encounter after encounter, the church gazes on Christ and is transformed, filled, built up until one day it will reach the full stature of Christ, it says Ephesians 4. God's people will know the perfection of his love, perfect communion with God. And on that day, we will see the final prophetic fulfillment of the words that Jesus Jesus of Nazareth spoke on that day. Prisoners set free, the blind healed, the oppressed unchained, people of every tribe and tongue and nation, from all those backgrounds and more, all those salvation and more, gathered with all the angels of heaven, around the one who fulfills not only scripture, who fulfills all things. The Alpha and the Omega, the living one. Our eyes gaze, our eyes fixed upon him, wrapped in adoration. Our beautiful Lord and Savior, Jesus the Nazarene, the Christ. And the Spirit will be upon him in power. And it will fill us completely. And it will overflow. And the whole of the new creation will be anointed with the Holy Spirit as the waters cover the sea. Amen.